See you all the offer listeners. How is everyone doing? I just wanted to check in with you all before we proceed with this episode. We are truly living in some crazy times with this uh, coronavirus thing going global. And then here where I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, we just had an earthquake earlier this week. And um, and it's just been crazy. And so I hope everyone's doing well. And uh, thank you, everyone who's been uh, emailing me, leaving me messages from all over the world. I need to do another episode where we can just dive into some of those messages. But um, thank you for hanging in there. Um, we didn't put out an episode last week, but I'm going to make that up for you this week. I'm going to uh, put out two episodes this week. And because of the coronavirus, it seems like I have a lot of free time. So I will be doing, um, I want to do some supplemental um, episodes or maybe I just put that in the Q&A or combine that all together because there's so many other things that we can talk about uh, in regards to the podcast. So um, anyway, thank you again. And here we go. Episode 10. Well, it's been over a week, so I think we are definitely needing a recap from the last episode. In the last episode, Finau Ulukalala takes the war to Vavau. He thought he could replicate his victory at the Nukualofa Fortress. But the Vava'u fortress, named Fatungakoa, proved to be otherwise. Unlike the Nukualofa fort, Fatungakoa had an environmental advantage. The clay used to build the walls softened the blows of the carronade shots. The height of the wall gave the Vava'u warriors a height advantage as well. The siege lasted between six to seven hours before Ulkalala and his warriors retreated to their base in Neyafu. Before the siege at Fatungakoa, Mariner describes a beautiful scene where time was allocated for Kainga on both sides to say their final farewells. And during this siege, we are introduced to legendary warriors on both sides of the battle, whose names continue to endure today. So after the first siege, it appears we are at a stalemate. So after Ulukala and his men uh, retreated to Neafu, they finish up their fort both sides raid each other's camps and plantations, but nothing to give one or the other an advantage in the battle. And defectors arrive from Fatungakoa to bring news to Finau Ulukalala. Ulukalala receives intelligence of a large Ufi plantation of nearly matured Ufi. Knowing that it was well defended in daylight, he waits with a large army of warriors to plunder and destroy this plantation. Meanwhile, a young warrior arrives at Fatungakoa, and upon closer inspection, he is one of Ulukalala's warriors, and he wishes to defect. He informs them that Ulukalala is planning another attack on the Yam plantation, and he reveals that his own father, Liu Fao, 
and a few men are guarding the fortress, and that if they raid the Neafu fortress, Liu Fa will give it up without putting a fight. Two large parties of Ava'u warriors then organized. One party was to cut off Ulukalala's warriors heading towards the Ufi plantation, and the other party was to raid the Neafu fortress. So just as Ulukalala and his men were heading off to the Ufi plantation, they encountered yet another defector from the Fatungakoa fortress, and he reveals to Ulukalala that someone from his party defected and revealed his plans to the Vava'u camp and that Liu Fao has betrayed him. See, and this is why I've named this episode, These Hoes Ain't Loyal. Remember the episode where I talked about integrity versus loyalty? This is exactly what I'm talking about. These people ain't loyal at all. So then Finao Ulukalala is like, hold up, wait a minute. Uh, he immediately orders Liu Fao to be detained and confined and that he would deal with him later. He then proceeds to Fatungakoa and lies in wait for the Vava'u warriors that were supposed to ambush him. And so the Vava'u warriors arrive and they're getting ready to set up their ambush, but they had no idea Fina Ulukalala and his men were already there. So Mariner describes a great battle ensued between both camps, ending in great slaughter. 60 of the Vava'u warriors were killed and Finao Ulukalala lost 15 of his own men and they gave chase to the Vava'u men but they were eventually joined by more warriors from their side who came down to join the battle. Ulukalala decided it was not wise for them to continue the pursuit so they retreated back to their Neafu fortress taking with them the 60 dead bodies of the Vava'u warriors that fell. Meanwhile the other party of Vava'u warriors that set out to capture the Neafu fort found that it was unoccupied. They suspected it was a setup, so they took off. When Ulukalala and his men arrived at the Neafu fort, they shared out the 60 bodies of the dead to different gods who had temples dedicated to them within the fort. Mariner writes, In performing this ceremony, the people formed a large circle on the ground with Finau at the upper end. The bodies being placed in a row before Finau, a man rose up and counted the bodies, declaring out loud their number. Finau then ordered that so many should be allotted to such a god, and so many to such another, and so to the rest. The gods were named Taliai Tupo, Tuifua Pulotu, Lau Filitonga, Tupo Lalotonga, and Sinai Takala. The first two are only imaginary beings, the others are souls of departed chiefs, and the last is a goddess, the soul of a female chief of that name. This being done, their bodies were carried away and laid before the houses of the different gods to whom they were allotted. After they had remained three or four hours, those who had relations among the garrison of Neafu were carried away and buried. The remainder, which were only nine or ten in number, were conveyed to the waterside and there disposed of in different ways. I think that's a polite way of saying they were fed to the sharks. But what happened to the other bodies? Well, let's find out. Two or three were hung up upon a tree, a couple were burnt, three were cut open from the motives of curiosity to see whether their insides were sound and entire, and to practice surgical operations upon which I will describe later. And lastly, two or three were cut up to be cooked and eaten, of which about 40 men partook. It is a firm belief with the people that if a man infringes upon the taboo or commits any sacrilege, his liver or some other viscous is liable to become enlarged and cirrhosis. They therefore opened up dead bodies out of curiosity to see if they have been sacrilegious in their lifetime. The natives of these islands 
are particularly subject to cirrhosis tumors. Mariner continues, This was the second instance of cannibalism that I witnessed, but the natives of these islands are not to be called cannibals on this account. So far from it being a general practice, it is on the contrary generally held in abhorrence. And where it is occasionally done, it is only by young warriors who do it in imitation of the Fiji Islanders, attaching to it an idea that there is something in it designating a fierce, warlike, and manly spirit. When they return to Neafu after their inhuman repast, several persons, particularly women, avoided them, saying, Go away, you man-eater. bodies now disposed of, Finau turns his attention to Liu Fao. Liu Fao declared his innocence and stating, his son must have invented a story to placate the enemy and that he's always been of good character and has always been loyal and firmly attached to the interests of Ulukalala. Ulukalala had him set free and reinstated. Ulukalala then ordered a ceremony of kava drinking to the priest of his tutelary god, Dupo Tautai, as thanksgiving for his recent victory at the plantation. So in the pantheon of Tongan gods, uh, so you've got what uh, Mariner referred to earlier earlier as uh, imaginary beings. Uh, those are really, uh, well, imaginary to him because he's a Palangi, but those are like the gods that we have in our Tongan. Um, I would even say not mythology, but cosmology because it goes back to the creation of um, time and space so you have those kind of gods these are like the really high ranking gods but then you have the tutelary gods these are the gods that are like i think the best way to describe it is that they're the spirits of uh, ancestors who are uh, deceased and are now deified and so um, they're kind of like a protector a guardian spirit maybe and some of these tutelary gods may be just unique to certain families some of them are unique to different professions different occupations and so in Finau Ulukalala's case his tutelary god was Dupototai uh, and Dupototai was the god of fishermen and so Mariner writes this ceremony is exactly the same as that of invoking a god through the medium of his priest and consists merely in the customary form of sitting down to make kava in the presence of a priest, and he presiding at the head of the ring. In this instance, after the kava, pork, etc. had been served out, one of the matapule in a few words thanked the god in the person of the priest for the late signal victories. The priest in answer, after waiting for another dish of kava, declared that Finau would at length succeed in his war against Feretoa, but that this fortress was not the strongest power he had to contend with, for the seeds of insurrection were already sown in his own army, and although Liu Fao was perfectly innocent of what had been alleged against him, there was one at no great distance from him for whom so much could not be said. The god, having condescended to declare this, left his priest, and the latter rose and went away. Finau pretended to take no notice of what the priest declared, not wishing the circumstance to be much noticed by others. So basically what just happened is a, a priest who's also a medium, okay, so he channels the 
the gods and and the will of the gods and so he is the one who is the spokesperson for whatever it is that he's channeling and he's letting Fina Ulkalala know that Liu Fao is innocent and there is somebody in their camp who is much closer to him who is betraying him and so um Fina Ulkalala hears this and he's like oh okay well I hope nobody else heard that but I'm pretty sure they did. The following day an adopted son of Fina Ulkalala brought him intelligence from scouts who have noticed that several men have been sent off by Mapaha'ano to the fortress of Feletoa. Fina Ulkalala immediately sent for Mapaha'ano. He later arrived dressed in a taobala and wearing the leaves of the ifi tree and attended by a priest. Okay, so this is how you can tell someone is totally guilty. He is preemptively dressed in the attire of someone who has committed a wrong and um, is ready to receive whatever kind of punishment that is going to be dished out for him. In other words, Mapaha'ano is in deep shit. Mapaha'ano is summoned before Fina Ulukalala. He obeys the summons and came dressed in mats and with green leaves around his neck. These are the leaves of the Ifi tree, which is marks of humiliation and fear, and attended by a priest. Mariner writes, When they arrived opposite Fina's house, they sat down before it. Then the priest rose and advancing nearer to Finau, who was seated just within the eaves of the house, he again sat down before him and stated that Mapaha'ano had requested his intermediation to express for him the sentiments of self-accusation with which he felt himself oppressed and his acknowledgement of the justice of his fate if he now should think proper to take away his life. The king replied that he did not mean to take away his life for that it was not the custom at Tonga to kill those of whom one has no reason to be afraid, and that he did not think it worth his while to destroy a mere butterfly, but that he should take other measures of punishment not less exemplary, and then desired the culprit to consider himself for the future as divested of all power and rank, no longer to be the commander of men but a single and unprotected individual, that his chiefship from that moment was null, and that consequently he was never more to take his seat as a chief at any of his gava ceremonies. A certain chief who was present observed to Finau that if he suffered this man to live, although he was deprived of power, he might nevertheless, by pernicious counsel, inspire other chiefs with sentiments derogatory to the welfare of Finau's government. To which Finau replied that this is not a war between men in whose success or ill success the gods took no interest, but one in which his tutelary god, Dupototai, presided in a particular manner over his fortune and welfare, and that this god would take care that such pernicious attempts on the part of the disgraced chief should not affect the other chiefs of his army, or if they did, that he should be made acquainted with it by the priest. The company now dispersed. So basically what happened, uh, Mapaha'ano's life was spared, but um, he was stripped of all of his titles, uh, privileges that came with it, whatever power that came with it, he didn't have it anymore. And um, I think it's funny also, Fina Urukalala refers to him as a butterfly. So it's kind of like heliaki for like, you know, you're, you're no threat to me. You are a fragile little butterfly 
and there was concerns that you know he might um, provoke some of the other chiefs to revolt against Finau Ukalala and um, Finau Ukalala is just like my my God protects me, so I'm not even worried about him at all. I think for a Tongan male who is titled, who has a title, who is a chief, who is part of a chiefly clan, uh, to have this taken away from them is probably even worse. And so we see Mariner, he writes, After this period, Mapaha'ano always wore mats as significant of his degraded state. He seldom attended any public ceremonies or assemblies because it obliged him to sit with the common people and he could not brook on such occasions to feel so much his inferiority to other chiefs who formerly were his equals. It must not be supposed that he always wore these mats from pure humility, but rather from fear, for had he appeared without them, Finau would have been angry, and death might have been the consequence. Now this next part, this is why this episode is actually named uh, these hoes ain't loyal. Okay, so we've heard about different defections, but Mariner notes that now it was becoming a daily thing, and it was actually annoying Finaulukalala. He writes, There being now every day some desertion or another of either army to the opposite one, and the king issued orders that every deserter from the enemy should be put to death, the same as if he had been a deserter from himself. This he did the better to avoid all communication between the two contending armies. I guess you could say this is like a form of uh, social distancing, except you're distancing yourself from all the bullshit. One of the things I love about this book is when we are introduced to different warriors and i wish that there was more of that um, i find that i have to do more research outside of the book to just find out a little bit more about these warriors that are mentioned um, during this battle in vavau uh, and even what was happening in Tongatapu. and so i think um, because mariner was not from tonga he didn't have the insights to um, actually you know report on some of those things when he was writing his um, his account uh, but i find that some of those uh information can be found in other sources and so i've um tried my best to integrate all the information that i can find into this podcast one of those warriors was uh, from the vavau side and his name was moteita so that's how it's written in the book i don't know if that's the actual name or if that's the actual spelling and i've tried to do research on this one particular name and i couldn't find anything so if any of you out there are my fellow vavauans if you are familiar with this name by relation or by whatever please let me know so that um, i can make sure that um, at least what i'm presenting is factual but Moteita was a warrior on the Vavau side, and he had been leading night raids against um, Finau Ulukalala's camp very successfully to the point where he was like terrorizing their camp. So what he would do is he would come at night and he would get so close to the camp where he was able to kill, you know, some of Finau's men at nighttime and then retreat. And so he had a reputation with Finau's uh, camp. And at the same time, he infuriated them to the point where they really wanted his head. So Finau Ulkalala ordered for his men and all his people to stay close or within the fort. However, they were running out of food 
and they needed to occasionally venture outside the fort to look for food, knowing that at any time Moteita could be out there with his men and they could have been killed. So Mariner and a few men, they take the risk and they venture outside on a food-finding expedition. As they're out looking for food, they run into four men from the Vava'u camp. And these men were in the process of uh, digging ma out of a pit. Now, those of you that are not familiar with ma pits, so ma like bread, okay? Literally bread. So back in the day, um, they used to ferment breadfruit, different types of like bananas and hopa and things like that. And this was a way to uh, preserve food and make them last longer. This was one of the ways where they, um, the ancient navigators, okay, they fermented food and took the food along with them on their travels. Uh, and this is how they did it. They uh, would dig up pits and then they would bury them in the pits, cover them up, ferment them. And then um, I'm, I've never tasted ma from a ma pit because uh, we don't do it anymore. I imagine it would probably have some kind of a funky taste. And, you know, I'll try anything once. But what's cool about this is that, you know, ma pits was a pan-Pacific practice. So every Polynesian culture has some kind of uh, ma pit or the way they practice this. And this is one of the things that went from Western Polynesia all the way to Eastern Polynesia up to Hawaii. So I imagine this pit was probably here um, buried before Urukala and his men came. And, um, and so these men were quietly trying to go and retrieve the contents from the mob pit but unfortunately they were caught by mariner and the men that were with him mariner writes these men they immediately laid hold of and dragged them out of the pit to take them home prisoners imagining that they had got moteita and his followers who had so often committed depredations upon them and resolving therefore to make a signal example of their prisoners a young chief however opposed this measure and proposed that it would be better to cut off their heads at once and take their heads home. This plan was immediately assented to, but someone observing that they had no knives with them, another casting his eyes upon the ground remarked, there was something that they would do as well, and taking up a shell from a neighboring spot where some persons had been eating large pearl oysters, he proposed to proceed to work with the oyster shells as substitute for knives. This was immediately approved of, and the four unfortunate victims were taken in hand, it was in vain that they begged for their lives, protesting that they were not the persons they had taken them for. In vain did I point out the cruelty of the act, urging them at least to kill them first speedily and cut off their heads afterwards. To this remonstrance, they answered that their prisoners deserved to be severely punished for the many atrocities that had committed, and as to killing them first and cutting off their heads afterwards, they thought it was unnecessary trouble. This horrible piece of cruelty was accordingly committed on the spot. Okay, for this next part, I hope you are all ready for this and you're holding on to something because it's pretty uh, descriptive. Mariner writes, They began the operation after having stripped themselves to prevent their ngatu from getting bloody by haggling at the back of the neck. Then they cut gradually around the throat till they had got through everything but the spine which they had divided by turning the head down and giving it a violent twist. This being done, they washed themselves, resumed their ngatus, and proceeded with the foreheads to the garrison. It was still early when they arrived and they found the king 
sitting with his friends on the malae drinking kava. The foreheads were brought to him by different men and placed in the middle of the circle upright with their faces towards Finau, who returned his thanks as customary to those who had killed them. Having seated myself near Finau, the latter asked me, why didn't they just kill them at once without cutting off their heads? The question he asked partly from motives of humanity and partly to know why they took so much trouble about them. Meanwhile, at the Vava'u camp and a few days later, a priest named Tupoupuku, belonging to the Kolo of Feletoa and a relation of Finau, suggested in a consultation session policies that favored Urukalala. And of course, this pissed off like the Vava'u council or whoever was there at this uh, consultation meeting. And so they didn't trust him and they stated that he was really of no use to the cause. So someone suggested that he should just be killed before he betrays them, or he should at least be confined. The chiefs in charge replied that they would consider it. But Tupopuku ain't no dummy, because the next day they woke up and he was gone. He took off for the Neafu Fort earlier in the morning, and when he arrived there, he revealed the plans of the Vava'u chiefs to besiege the Neafu Fort. Ulukalala then spent the next couple of days refortifying his Neafu Fortress in anticipation. And so they waited. As they wait, Finau Ulukalala decides that he will make Vava'u his home base. And there are two reasons for why he decided this. First, Vava'u was larger than Hapai and most plentiful, bountiful. Everything he needed was there. Secondly, he believes that his presence in Vava'u would make it least likely for Vava'u people to mess with him and to give him the respect that he feels he deserves from his own people. Because Finau Kalala is from Tuanuku Vava'u. But you know, these Vava'u people, they actually have some very good reasons to not trust him. He murdered his own brother, Tuponiwa. Tuponiwa was the governor of Vava'u and loved by the people uh, for some very obvious reasons. He was totally the opposite of his brother Finau Ulukalala, a man of integrity and honor and a champion of the people and social justice. Okay, I think we will end the episode right there. Uh, This is a good time to actually end because of the events that are going to take place in the next episode. Uh, let's just say the body counts keep increasing. We are introduced to more of these legendary warriors um, on both sides of the battle. Are we even close to some kind of a resolution? It doesn't appear to be so. So tune in to episode 11. Uh, I will be uploading that shortly so that uh, you can have two episodes today as we are all quarantining ourselves from this crazy coronavirus and i hope that you are all doing your part to stay indoors and making sure that you're not um, exposing yourself to the virus or exposing it to others so please stay safe practice uh, social distancing and again thank you for your support of this podcast i greatly appreciate it stay safe and we'll catch you on the next episode Oh, uh-huh.